This is Roger Hallam, and you're listening to Designing the Revolution. This is Talk 11, Part 1, Action Theory. Okay, so we've spent two or three sessions talking about sociability, and then before that, proximity. And hopefully you've got the general idea that a major part of what we're doing, probably a central idea here is you do recruitment, you're mobilizing people, they can get into groups. We talked a little bit about the action side of it, but it goes without saying, or hopefully it goes without saying, that without action, um, things are not going to progress. In other words, the recruitment sociability side of it is intimately connected with the action side. Like you can't have one without the other, assuming you're going to have <clears throat> some sort of movement and, and progression. One way of looking upon this is doing the recruitment and the meetings is a bit like building the frame of a bike and then the wheels are the action part of it. The wheels are the thing that takes it somewhere. So if you do just set up meetings and if you've been in some situation where there's an idea and people meet and they discuss this idea of meetings you, and then there's no transgressive action or even any action afterwards, then you probably know what happens is you end up with, after six months with six people, usually blokes in the pub talking about Marxism or something, and no disrespect to Marxist. And um, that's that. Um, so what we are going to be discussing here is how action animates this uh, sociability space and how the sociability space animates the action space. So to concretize this a little bit, think about the beginning of Extinction Rebellion, which I presume quite a few of you probably know the story, right, which was before Extinction Rebellion came along, there was uh, local groups like Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace or whatever, little environmental groups, and they were never, you know, they never grew very quickly. They were pretty static. It was very small, sort of almost no um, influence upon the general history of the climate crisis. Then at the other extreme, you had um, action groups, and they were very small quite insular, uh, quite aggressive, um, weren't interested in mobilization. And they did little actions here and there, but never got much attention. So what you can see with Extinction Rebellion, broadly speaking, of course, is the electricity, the explosion of bringing together mobilization and action in the same space. So it's a classic case of the, the whole being massively bigger than the parts. And this is going to be a theme that we're going to get excited about as we add new elements. So the more elements you add to the system, assuming they all fit together, then the bigger the bang that we're going to get. So we've got a few more elements to add after this action section. So it's not the end of the story by any means. But you can see, hopefully, this is the potentiality that you can have. You can have your cake and eat it, as it were. You can have a big social movement, and you can have loads of political effect, and those two things actually go together. 
and before Extinction Rebellion came around, you know, the general idea was if you engage in civil disobedience, no one's going to be interested, so you get hardly any people. And if you just do a normal social movement, you're going to get loads of people, but no effect because you're not going to do civil disobedience. What Extinction Rebellion showed was you can have best of both worlds. You can have a mass movement and you can have civil disobedience. And the reason you've got a mass movement is because of civil disobedience. That's what excites people. It's what animates people. Civil disobedience doesn't put people off. It actually brings people into the movement because they can see it's going to be effective. That's exciting. <laughs> it's not a zero-sum game. All right. So that's the broad framework. Let's have a look at what we're going to do in this session. I'm going to give a fairly conventional outline in this first uh, podcast about the theory. Just uh, lay the landscape out as well, the lay of the land, look at the lay of the land. And then in the second session, I'm going to look more deeply into it using the sociability framework that we've been discussing and look at the broader sort of strategic issues. And then we'll go on to the uh, ins and outs of actually designing actions and what's more effective than what and what to do where, when and how. Okay. So action. What we're talking about here is not just action. We're not talking about doing something which no one's going to be particularly upset about, you know, march, going out leafleting, whatever it is. What we're actually talking about when we talk about action for the purposes of these podcasts and then for the purposes of leading to a revolutionary level of disruption is that word, disruption. We're talking about disruption. We're not talking about like nonviolent action, nonviolent direct action, you know, these are all quite technical words. As far as I'm concerned, the word we want to focus on is disruption. It's a physical activity. It has an element of force to it. It's people doing stuff, they're moving their bodies. Now there is in the nonviolent repertoire, as it were, things which don't involve moving bodies, you know, like not paying your council tax, um, people not paying their taxes, rent strikes, that sort of thing. And we may sort of touch on that, but what we're going to focus on in this session is proactive disruption, physical disruption, with a view to creating political change as a general framework. All right, so let's look at this in a little bit more detail. Nonviolent disruption, okay? What is that? <laughs> what it, let's say it start with what it's not. What it's not is the sharing of information. So we've covered this theme a bunch of times now. There's this old-fashioned idea, going back to the Enlightenment, that people are rational, they receive information like computers, blah, 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 and they make a decision to support something. And what we're saying is, no, that's not how it works. Uh, there's two problems. People don't think like that. And also, in the real world, there's time, and you've got to get their attention. So the starting point for disruption, the logic of disruption, is attention. If you don't get attention, then you're not even on the foothills and making political change. That's a no-brainer. People have to know what you're doing. You have to know why you're doing it. They have to discuss it. They might not like it. But unless you've got the attention, it's a non-starter. That's the main purpose, starting purpose of disruption. Then we can split it into two broad areas of causality. In other words, it creates two things. It creates effects external to the movement, 
and it creates effects internal to the movement or to the organization. So let's start with the external situation. You're getting attention, as we just said. And the reason you're getting attention is because it's transgressive. It's illegal, or some people think it's illegal. So, you know, let's say for the sake of argument, sitting on the road or something like that. What that does is the attention leads on to emotional arousal. In other words, it's a drama. That's why it's going to get in the news. You're blocking a motorway. No one goes around blocking motorway every day of the week. It's news. It's new. It doesn't happen very often. But not only that, it's causing a lot of emotional disruption as well. People are mad about it. Some people support it. Some people don't. It's also a morality tale, right? So you've got these different elements, attention, emotion, morality, in the same way as a soap opera is a morality tale. In other words, what, what human beings love to do is discuss whether something's right or wrong. They like that sort of thing. And, you know, some people support it and some people don't. And this spreads through various public spheres like, you know, discussions by the public, people down the pub talking about it, people talking about it on the TV, it's on the media, so you've got media pundits, commentators being dismissive of it, some people supporting it, you know, more drama. And ultimately, you've got the government talking about it in the House of Commons, you know, politicians putting tweets out saying, you know, this is outrageous and quicker they go to jail, the better and all that sort of stuff. Um, so you've got this animation and this animation, as we'll move on to in a minute, is going to produce political change. Secondly, then, you've got the internal effects. By internal effects, as I've said, it's like what happens to the motivation structure of the people inside the movement or the organization and people who are attracted to move into it. So the general gist here is it intensifies this commitment. The reason for that, as I think we've covered in previous sessions, is if you see people you're connected with engaging in courageous action, you might not like it, you might be threatened by it, but in the short to medium term, you're likely to go, no, you know, I support them because I have an emotional connection, I love them, um, they're meaningful to me, their welfare is what I'm concerned about, and you get a consolidation of solidarity, community feeling, and such like. And this then feeds through to more people doing more disruption. As well, so that's what might happen internally, and then the theory is, is other people will see it on TV or whatever, and there'll be recruitment meetings and you've got this dynamo feedback loop where you're doing the recruitment, you do these actions, people find out about it, they go to meetings, they get involved, they think it's exciting, you know, it's going somewhere, more people go in the road and you've got this upward, upward spiral. All right, so let's take a little step backwards at this point and just think why does this work in a more broader sense? And the point I want to make here, and this is a really important point because a lot of conventional media people just don't get this, is nonviolent direct action, disruptive action, as we've talked about, is primarily designed to deal with entrenched power. In other words, if you've got a little issue, you know, a little bit of pollution in your local river or something, you might want to deliver some leaflets, you might want to go and talk to your local councillors, 
they might even wish to just provide some information because it's a deal, but it's not a massive deal, and you can get stuff to happen. What happens when you're dealing with entrenched power is all the conventional political means don't work because by definition, the power is entrenched, meaning it's not going to move. It's only going to move if there's an element of public drama, physical force, i.e. people doing stuff, and and that for, that power is overwhelmed. So we, we can think of a bunch of examples of that. I'll do that in a minute. But there's another element which is often confusing for postmodernist people, as it were, like people who sort of run the media and run the academia. So they'll say something like, civil disobedience, you know, works or it doesn't work. What they don't say is what the issue is, because what postmodernism means is, is your values are the same as my values, and values are much of a muchness, and no one can come along and say who's right and who's wrong, because it's all relative, right? In some sort of absolute philosophical sense, that's got a lot going for it. But in a pragmatic sense, it's bollocks. Well, it, what, what you find in any society, or most societies most of the time, is there's clear, clear moral transgressions. You know, people don't murder each other, people don't enslave each other, etc., etc. So if civil disobedience is going to be successful civil resistance, it's a no-brainer that it's not going to be successful if it's got demands which do not coincide with the objective or at least intersubjective uh, values of that society. So this is no big deal, the more you think about it practically. So if you look at the history of disruptive action over the last two centuries, you can see there's been a bunch of issues where most of society is in a in some sort of conflict, there's a contradiction. So society is saying, we're not being nice to people, and at the same time, there's a contradiction because people in society aren't being nice to people, they're being crap. So a classic example is slavery, you know, we're all believing in equal rights, blah, 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 and we just happen to be enslaving lots of people. Well, that's a complete contradiction, and that's the sort of thing which uh, is in the is in the sort of set, as it were, of, of things where civil disobedience will work. It's entrenched power and there's a moral contradiction. Sim movements um, like Gandhi in India, you know, British people generally don't want to ruin other people's countries, but there they are in India, you know, undermining uh, Indian autonomy, Indian independence. So Gandhi goes around doing this civil disobedience and exposes that moral contradiction. And in more modern times, since the Second World War, we've got the well-known examples of the Black Rights Movement, uh, in civil rights movement in the US, uh, gay rights, uh, uh, action on inequality, workers' rights, and of course, moving up to the present day with the climate crisis. All right. So what we've established is disruption is applicable both strategically and morally when we're dealing with entrenched power and moral contradictions in society. All right, so let's move on to how this develops through time, through a timeline. So one way of looking at this is to check in on what Gandhi is said to have said. I'm not sure whether he did say this, but Let's pretend he did. <laughs> okay, 
So this is the idea. There's four stages through time. There's the stage where the opposition ignores you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. So as soon as you look at that progression, it's sort of interesting because it is a little bit counterintuitive. And this is the biggest misunderstanding with civil disobedience and civil resistance. Is when you get to the fight stage, a lot of people misinterpret that as, oh my God, you know, they're doing us in, we're going to lose, we're going to stop, it doesn't work, and they don't continue. While what you might call a professional civil resistance designer or organizer knows that the opposite is true, that the counterintuitive is right, which is the more that they're repressing you and engaging in uh, uh, fight stage type stuff, the more likely you're going to win. And the practical implication of that is you keep going. You just keep going. Um, and why, why is that? Because of this thing called backfiring. So backfiring is really the backbone of nonviolence theory. What backfiring is saying is during that fight stage, assuming you've got nonviolent discipline, there's a fair probability, and note this is a probability business, right? It's not a mechanical car engine business. There's a high probability or a significant probability that the suffering of the people in the fight stage will provoke sympathy and solidarity, as we've just mentioned a few minutes ago, which will bring more people into the civil disobedience space. You've got more people, and then through force of numbers, broadly speaking, you get to the win stage. So let's look at this in a little bit more detail. So a classic example of this is Birmingham 1963 in the civil rights movement in America. Now, I'm obviously going to simplify somewhat, but the general gist is that thousands of young people uh, you know, some of them children, came onto the street in 1963 to fight against uh, segregation in Birmingham, Alabama, which is was the center of the sort of racist society in the American South. The reason they chose Birmingham, Martin Luther King and his colleagues, wasn't because they were nice people in Birmingham, because they were professionals. What they wanted, of course, was to choose a, a context where there was going to be that fight stage because it's the fight stage which actually produces the win. So what that concretely meant was the guy who ran the police force, I think he was called Bill Connor, um, he was a bit of a fascist without beating around the bush. And they chose Birmingham because they knew that he wouldn't be calmly taking people off the streets. He could be provoked and he would unleash varying levels of violence upon these teenagers and young people. And that would provoke a national and international outcry. And guess what? It did. Because <laughs> these people knew what they were doing. You know, there were lots of, lots of stops and starts in it. There were lots of problems. There are lots of possibilities. It could not have worked. But in this situation, they rolled the dice, as you might say, and it worked. In other words, there was a photo, a, a sort of tipping point was a photo 
of a dog about to bite uh, one of these black young people and the black guy looked fairly serene um, which was more to do with the photo than the guy I think but it went around America it went internationally put pressure on the government and from that moment they'd lost the fight fundamentally obviously that that wasn't the only thing that happened obviously you had to have these young people coming out every day onto the streets and getting arrested by the thousand or what have you. The other element of it is this humiliation dynamic, which is lots of people saw these super brave black young people and they wanted to come and help either through support or money or actually go onto the street. So a certain number, I think about a thousand, two thousand kids came out on the first day and they were all put in prison. And that didn't lead to, the repression didn't lead to people backing off. It meant it led to the opposite, which was people went, okay, this is our moment where we're going to stand up for our rights. And they came out onto the streets. Now, I think in a session or two ago, I mentioned this in the Egyptian revolution, where um, people saw other people, other people from Cairo being humiliated, being shot, you know, subject to violence. And instead of this leading to people staying away, it led to more people being involved. And there was a famous video where a young Islamic woman said, I'm going to Tariq Square. I don't care what the men do because I'm over this and you can do what you like. I'm going. And the counterintuitive effect of that, as it were, was all these about a million or two people watched it, as far as I can remember. And loads of the young men said, hang on a minute, if this young woman's going to Cherry Square and she's going to risk her life, then we're going to do it as well. And it got to the tipping point and they won in terms of bringing the government down at least. Now, one thing to be said about this is you've just heard me say this is, this is not a done deal. And this is another confusion. People say, well, you know, it doesn't always work, which is perfectly correct. That's not the point from a pragmatic design point of view. The point is, is if you don't do it, then you don't get to roll the dice. In other words, if you don't engage in civil disobedience or civil resistance, you've got, broadly speaking, zero chance of breaking through. Like black people in the American South have been using conventional campaigning for two or three generations you know since the american civil war and broadly speaking they hadn't got anywhere and while once they adopted civil disobedience they had a chance they had a chance to roll the dice and they rolled you know a four five or six or whatever 50 percent chance and they were so it's possible it wouldn't have it wouldn't have happened that's not the issue the issue is it puts you in a position to win and why is that that's because the opposition is fundamentally unable to determine whether to step back or to engage in more repression. In other words, if you think about an opposition, they've got to decide what to do about your civil disobedience. They've either got to go, we're going to ignore it and hope it goes away, so we don't provoke a backfiring effect. So you often see this, you know, particularly in the Western Western world, in Europe, people aren't given big jail sentences or whatever because they don't want to make masters out of people. So that's one strategy. The other strategy is we've had enough of this. You know, 
Roger Hines, you know, leading member of just a ball wing, I'd stick him in prison for six months and get him out of action. That's the repression scenario. Now, the nature of complexity, we talked about complexity quite a bit. The nature of complexity is it's indeterminate, right? It's very difficult to determine which is right. In other words, when people engage in repression, when an opponent engages in repression, it could be go two ways. It could be successful. You know, repression often is successful, but it often is not. And it's impossible, and this is the key point, it's effectively impossible to know which is the right thing to do. Similarly, if, if you just let it, things carry on, they can peter out. You know, just ignore it, it peters out. Or the opposite dynamic can come into play, which is they're not doing anything, let's more people go to the street. So the point here, here is you're playing a sort of game with the opposition where you could win. If you don't play the game, then you're never going to win. And you can see this playing out over and over and over again in modern history and arguably right through human history. So just to give you two examples, you might want to check them out. So these are like classical revolution scenarios. So in the American Revolution, when they got independence from, from Britain, the British were in this terrible dilemma that on the one hand, they quite liked the Americans, you know, they were spoke the same language, a lot of them were migrants from the UK and what have you. And so there was a lobby to go, let's sit down and, and sort things out with these people and make some compromises. So they tried to do that, and then they wouldn't get very far, and then they'd flip over to a repression scenario, and they'd go out, and these you know, guys in red uniforms, uh, red coats, would go and shoot some Americans, and then it just made it even worse. So whatever the British did, they just made it worse. Uh, and you know, the long and short of it was this provoked unity of purpose, solidarity, a clarity that independence was the way to go, and it went from worse to worse for the British, and they lost the the election. Uh, it happened in 1905. So again, you've got a similar workers. You you know allow the workers to organise, be nice to them. The problem with that is then more and more workers will start organising. So that's a problem. That's a dilemma. Alternatively, you send the troops out and they shoot people in the streets. Hopefully that works because they're all scared and they go back, you know, uh, and, and retreat. Or they get really mad and more people come out on the street. And again, what happened in 1905, broadly speaking, was whatever they did, they shook the wrong dice. And it just grew and grew and grew until those major reforms uh, were brought in. So that's the landscape, as you might say, of what classical civil disobedience theory is, is all about. And there's an end game element where some elements of the establishment basically change sides. And this is when you either get legislative change or a change of regime, depending upon the, on the situation. So this is very much part of Gene Schwab's disobedience, so you can check him out. He's like the grandfather, as you might say, of, of non-violence theory. So he has this idea there's pillars in society, you know, the judiciary, the police, uh, the church, um, 
you know, teaching profession, academia, whatever, uh, civil service, all these pillars exist um, with their own interests. So the state is not a single atomized entity. It's not, doesn't in actuality have its own interest. What it has is it's an alliance between lots of elite groups and their interests obviously broadly overlap, but in significant ways they cannot overlap. And when they come under the pressure of large-scale civil resistance, then some of the groups are liable to jump ship or to crack or to give up. So there's a little hint of this, for instance, at the moment. I've been saying this in Germany where I understand three or four German judges have said we're not going to prosecute people for, you know, agreeing themselves on motorway. So that's a crack. But let's say 50 German judges say that could become impossible to successfully prosecute uh, these um, civil resistance people. And you're shaking a dice then that all people will engage in civil resistance because there's not going to be any legal consequence, they're not going to get a fine, they're not going to be taken to court. And so you, you've got this feedback mechanism. And before you know it, the government's, you know, terrified of the whole thing getting totally out of hand and so they give in and change legislation. Uh, another example which is a little less sort of dramatic <laughs> is the October rebellion of Extinction Rebellion in yeah, in 2019. So dare I say I was in prison at the time so I wasn't really on the streets on this but the general gist was that we had been told by some people in the judiciary that if there was 3,000 arrests, then that would be the tipping point for the judiciary or the, the police force to, to the government. We're not going to play ball anymore. I think 1,700 arrests. And as it approached 1,700, 1,800 arrests, you could see the first cracks beginning to form. So, for instance, the co-leader, I think it was, of the Green Party, decided to come and brought in this this section, this law where two people could not demonstrate, you know, so it's a repression scenario, and this provoked the Green Party finally into doing some solidarity, as it were, they didn't turn up on the first day, but they would turn up on the last day. So you can see the beginnings of getting the liberal space to come out in solidarity because of the repression of the British state. Another sort of element of it was that the, there were some stories of people being overwhelmed, they were exhausted, they'd done you know, four 12-hour shifts, they'd been doing it for 10, 12 days or whatever, and they were like discussing taking the civil disobedience people uh, in the vans, driving around the corner and letting them out. Because if they took them to the police station, then they would be contractually obliged to stay there until the people had been processed and they wouldn't get home till dead late and they're just exhausted and they're just over it. So they weren't like necessarily pro the demonstrators. They were just exhausted through the force of the level of civil disobedience. So you can see the first cracks. You know, if you could imagine if it had gone on for another week, Five or six police officers might have made a public statement saying this is not our problem, the government needs to sort it out. So this is like a radically non-linear scenario, as we've discussed in previous sessions. It's like nothing much is happening, the cracks appear, and then all of a sudden you've got whoosh, the government 
you know, negotiates or there's a change of government, and this is how it how it works. It doesn't always work, but it sometimes works, and in so much as it sometimes works, it's better than something that doesn't work at all. And that's the broad step one summary of what the action theory is. And what I'm going to do in the next session is take a little bit more of a step back and look at it in a more deeper way that connects with the whole sociability thing that we've been talking about for the last few sessions. So I'll see you then. Thanks.